you know, we are very, very passionate about our music and we run it like a business. We run it like a startup. We wake up in the morning, first thing, we're, we're with our coffee and our laptops doing, you know, band stuff. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Bree is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Bree's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Bree is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, what's going on? This is Brie Noble, and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. And if you've been listening every week, you've noticed that we've changed up our format a bit. Every week on Thursdays, we release our episode based upon my Facebook live show, Indie Interactive, that is on Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, and we release it as a podcast on Thursdays. But we are not giving up our interview format. People love hearing from indie artists that are having success in their career. And so I am not going to give that up. We are going to be putting out interviews every other Monday. So this is a Monday and I'm glad you're listening. I am going to be interviewing an amazing artist today who's had some really great out of the gate success with her duo and being able to really leverage getting some placement on iTunes and really pushing their album up the charts. So you're going to really be interested to hear what they did to do this when I interview Sherry Lynn of 23rd Hour in just a minute. But before I do, I just want to remind you guys, I would love to have you come and watch my Facebook Live show on Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. It is called Indie Interactive because I want to interact with you. I want your comments. I want your responses to what I'm saying. I want to learn more about what you guys want to learn. So if you can, during your lunch hour, you know, during your, you know, little mid-morning break, come on over to the Women of Substance Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash WOS radio. Make sure and like our page so you get the notifications and then jump into Indie Interactive on Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sherry Lynn Lee. Sherry Lynn Lee is a singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist from the jazz pop duo 23rd Hour. She writes and performs in English, French, and Mauritian Creole. Her album with 23rd Hour, Perfect Strangers, debuted on the iTunes bestsellers chart at number 22 for new jazz releases and peaked at number 10 a few days later. Here is my interview with Sherry Lynn Lee of 23rd Hour. So that is a little bit about Sherry Lynn Lee from 23rd Hour. So Sherry, is there anything that's not in your bio that's a little more personal and interesting about you that we need to know? I grew up on a tiny island in the middle of the Indian Ocean called Mauritius. It's the island where it's the only place on earth where the dodo ever lived. Um, Most people know about the dodo, but they don't really know where it's from. (laughs) So that's where it's from. And I grew up there since I was there since I was two until I graduated high school and then went to college in Canada. 
my goodness, you're very global. So why were you, why were you there? I'm curious. Um, my parents grew up there. Um, so they had actually immigrated to Canada, but then my, my mom had some health issues and my dad wasn't making enough money to survive there. Um, so they decided to go back. Uh, yeah, so I grew up there and then I went back to Canada for college. That's really interesting. I definitely, I've never heard of that island. So how did you end up in the U.S.? So after I graduated, I was working in software and then uh, we, we got acquired and I got a job offer. Ah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So you kind of migrated um, just. Yeah. So um, it's funny because I, I kind of, you could say that I gave up music because I went to study something else, but then that helped me move to the U S and opened me up to more music opportunities. So it ended up working out. That's cool. I love how that happens. That's serendipity. So (laughs) how did you get started in music then? I've always loved music. My earliest memory was coming back home from kindergarten and sitting in the kitchen and just singing all the songs I'd learned to my mother while she was cooking. And I was just like walking around the kitchen singing every single day. (laughs) Um, So she, she saw that I was interested in music and she signed me up for piano lessons and uh, Chinese ballet, Mm. actually, uh, which I did for nine years. And, um, then when I was 15, I started playing guitar and I started writing my own songs. Actually, how I started writing my own songs is a very, very funny story. Mauritius is a very small island. There's 1.2 million people who live on the island. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a very small market for music. Um, and they just started having a radio contest where you could call in and you could sing a song and then you know they have people judging and somebody wins a prize so I think Wait, I was so you about just, you sing over the phone yeah that's awesome and <laughs> yeah so that I think if you get to the finals then they have a tv uh finals so I wanted to participate I was I think 14 at the time I said to my mom you know, I'd like to do this. And my mom is a very private person. Mm. She did not want her 14 year old daughter to be in, in the limelight because she was worried that, you know, it would just attract the wrong kind of attention. And, Mm. um, and I was also a very bright student, so she didn't want me to be distracted from my studies. (laughs) So, you know, in a way to gently say no, she said, well, actually the contest is for people who write their own songs and you don't have your own song. So unfortunately you can't participate. So that day I went to my room and I wrote my first song. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. So did you do it? I didn't do it. Actually, I wrote my first song and I'm like, wow, cool. I can write my own song. But then I was so embarrassed to show it to anybody for Mm. a long time. But, you know, once I started, I'm like, oh, I wrote one. Maybe I can write another one. And then I just kept going and I'm still writing them, you know, 15 years later. (laughs) I love that story. (laughs) So at this point, are you a full-time musician? Are you doing this on the side? And do you have other things that are paying the bills as well? 
I wish I was doing it full time, but I'm not. I actually have a day job. I work in the software industry and um, that's paying the bills and giving me the flexibility to uh, do what I want to do with my music. Um, I think my, my job has enabled me to invest in my music uh, in, you know, financially, I was able to save enough money to record this album, um, and to promote it. We recorded this album in Nashville, Toronto, Mauritius and California. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we've been, we've been very fortunate to be able to do that. And I think having a day job has really contributed to that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you can either have money or time and that's what I always think of it that way. And, you know, either you can have a lot of time to like go out there and raise the money, or you can have less time to focus on the music, but then you can have the money available because you're working full time. So there's different ways to do it. Yeah. And, and a valid way. Yeah. And George and I, I, you know, we are very, very passionate about our music and we run it like a business. We run it like a startup. We wake up in the morning, first thing we're, we're with our coffee and our laptops doing, you know, band stuff. Mm. And then, you know, I go to work, come back from work, we have dinner and then a glass of wine and we're on our laptops doing band work. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's nonstop. We do it every single day, almost every waking hour. You know, we're, we're thinking about what we can do next. How can we push it further? You know creating content and marketing it. So we are trying to make as much time for it as possible, despite our full-time day jobs. Yeah. It sounds like you're really achieving that. And you know, if you love it, then that's kind of your hobby, right? So that's okay that you're spending that time. Yeah. You don't feel like, you know, resentful or something that you're spending all your time doing that because it's fun. Right. So we have a lot of struggling musicians that listen to this show and I want to find out from you, you know, was there any time in your, your career that you were just super frustrated? You felt like, oh my gosh, I'm banging my head against the wall. I'm not making any progress. Maybe I should just give up. And maybe a story around that time of how you pushed through that, you know, what gave you the strength and the motivation to push through that and, you know, what you learned from it? Yeah. I mean, there are many, many, many occasions where I felt that I would never make it. And uh, starting with, you know, I've always liked music, but I never felt that it was possible to have a career in music because I was on a tiny island of 1.2 million people in the middle of the ocean. And, you know, even the most famous local musicians had day jobs because it's just Mm -hmm. such a small market. Uh, In addition to that, you know, I I was an ethnic minority and Chinese people there are not typically associated with music. Like there was no role model that looked like me. And, you know, for me, and even, even in Western media, you know, there's, there was no role model that I could say, Oh, you know, she did it. Maybe I can do it too. So I I think I kind of gave up before I even started. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have access to voice lessons, even though I love, love, love singing. There, There were just no voice coaches that I knew of, or, you know, that were close enough that I could go to. Um, so, I mean, I, I didn't feel like I could 
you know, become famous or anything, but I loved the music so much that I tried just for myself to get better. And I bought a little recorder and I would record myself and then I would hear the bad notes and I would wince and I would hate listening to it. But then I would try not to do that. So I kept doing that like for years And, you know, now I get a lot of compliments about my singing and they say, oh, you know, you have a great voice. And I did not have training. I am starting to take voice lessons now. Um, But listening to myself and correcting my mistakes in my own DIY way helped me get where I am today. Um, I've also had a bunch of experiences where I, in trying to get exposure, I did a contest, a singing contest, not like the TV ones, just like a smaller local one. And um, I played a an original song and I thought that the judges would appreciate that because everybody else was doing covers. And instead I got bashed for oh, it. No. Um, yeah, um, they, I kind of chose the wrong song. I didn't really know, you know, what you should choose for a contest song. I was kind of naive. I chose a song that I thought was more artistic. And of course it was not the most commercial song. Mm. So, you know, they say, Oh, you know, if you are going to play a song, it has to be something that people want to dance to. Kind of thing. Oh. Um, and then, you know, they said, well, you have a nice recording voice, but um, you know, it, you're not commercial enough. You know, I've heard that a lot. Mm-hmm. So that was very discouraging. And I think af- after that incident, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do those contests anymore because that's, it doesn't inspire me. It brings me down. And uh, I think there are people who enjoy my music and who are not there to give me a grade from one to 10. And I've been focusing on just finding those people and playing for them, even if it's one, two, five, 10, 20, you know? So I think really finding what it is that you want to achieve and not going after those other things that won't help, um, it, it, it makes it more enjoyable. Yeah, I think that's really smart. I mean, there are many, many genres and artists out there that don't fit that commercial mold and are not going to do well on American Idol or any other contest. Right. And that's totally fine because there's many, many listeners out there that don't want to listen to that commercial music. Right. Right. So yeah, I think that's a very good insight and I'm glad you're not continuing to try and do those contests when they're just frustrating you and, and upsetting. And, you know, I, I totally get that. Yeah. So very smart. So how did you and your uh, duo partner, George, meet? So after I moved to the Bay Area, the first thing I did was find out where the musicians are, because that's my my crowd. Mm. So I go to an open mic that's close to my apartment, and I saw him play. He was one of the few people who had originals, and I really liked his song. So I went up to him one day and said, hey, I really liked your set. Uh, would you do you ever collaborate with people? And if so, would you like to collaborate with me? And he lied and said, yes. <laughs> um, he, he actually has been in many bands before and he was kind of done with it, you know, all the mm. band politics and um, he just thought it was too much work. And he's always been the songwriter. So he would always write the songs by himself. Um, but I think he was kind of intrigued because I was very different in style. He has seen me play. 
So it wasn't a, it wasn't obvious that we had anything in common at all, but I like his stuff. So I went up to him and say, Hey, you know, I think it would be cool if we collaborate. And he said, yes. So we got together and of course we had nothing in common. Um, he knew everything from, you know, the old jazz stuff to Beatles, you know, and James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, basically everything up to the eighties, uh, like the start of the eighties. And then I knew anything mostly nineties onwards <laughs> due to my age. So we got together and we're like, Oh, okay. We don't know anything in common, but let's jam. <laughs> um, and then by the end of the session, we found a couple of songs that we knew. And then we gave each other homework to learn a few songs from, you know, I learned a few jazz songs. He learned a few newer songs and, uh, we learned some of each other's songs and we just found that we worked well together. I really liked what he added to my songs and he liked what I added to his songs. Um, so we just started playing more and more. And then one time we got together on a Friday night, we played, we just jammed throughout the night. Uh, we took like three hours off for a nap, continued jamming all Saturday, went to a concert after the concert, we bust on the street until three in the morning. And then we went back to this place and we jammed some more. And then after 23 hours of jamming, we started writing our first song, which is called Perfect Strangers. So that's how 23rd Hour came to be. Wow. I was going to ask how that name came about. That's awesome. (laughs) Wow. How would you even have the presence of mind to write a song after being up for 23 hours? I don't know. (laughs) You know, I find that a lot of times when I'm in that you know, super tired zone. I feel like maybe, maybe it's because my filter isn't on anymore. I just find it easier to write. That's interesting. It's kind of having a few glasses of wine (laughs) before you write. (laughs) That's funny. So let's talk about, you know, so you went from there writing your first song. How did you get to recording an album in those four cities and then the massive success that you had with this album when it came out. Yeah. So initially when we were playing together, we were doing recordings in the home studio just for fun, just for us. And then um, I had worked at a studio in Toronto that I really liked and I did live recordings there. And I talked to George about it and he said, oh, that, that would be fun. So we decided to go there and hire musicians to back us up. So we hired a bass player and a drummer who I've met through college. They, they are jazz musicians. Um, so we went there, we recorded a bunch of tracks live and we weren't really sure what we were going to do with it at first. And then we started writing more songs and, you know, increasing our repertoire. So then we had enough songs that we could put out an album and we were like, well, okay, let's, let's just do that. And whenever we go on vacation, we, we go on vacation together and, um, we always make it a musical vacation. We always either take instruments or rent instruments, uh, and if possible, go to a local studio and do something. Cool. So we, we went to Toronto a couple of times cause I, I was there before I have a lot of family there. I had a, an apartment there. My brother was there. Um, 
And then uh, we went to Nashville for a week because it's Nashville. You have to go there <laughs> at least once. Um, it was such an amazing experience. And then my family is in Mauritius. So we went to Mauritius and visit my family. And uh, I had also worked with another studio there. Um, so yeah, basically it, it was past connections and we decided to work with those people again. They were great. And then once we got the album together, we were like, okay, how do we market this? And we started coming up with a game plan. I think, so being in Silicon Valley, you know, we, we kind of compare our music to being a startup. So, you know, how do you position your product? How do you get people to know about it? And how, so, um, one of the things that we did was, you know, we hired a publicist, Ariel, and, um, we were trying to figure out, okay. So she said, well, maybe you guys should get on Twitter. We had not really started doing Twitter. We had maybe nine followers. I mean, really at zero. <laughs> so we get on Twitter and, you know, we have zero followers We're trying to figure out, okay, how do we get people to start following us? I'm reading up on Twitter and hashtags and I'm like, I made a list of all the hashtags for all the different days. And one of the things that I thought might work is wine Wednesday because we both love wine. We're in California where we're surrounded by wineries. Um, and we would love to play at those wineries at some point. So we thought, okay, let's do something about wine Wednesday. You know, that's something that we like doing anyway. We like drinking wine. Um, but maybe we can work this as one of our strategies. So we did that. And uh, sure enough, we started getting some followers. George came up with the idea of, oh, let's pair a wine with a song. And then we can, oh, of course, that. choose a song that we have written right. <laughs> or that is on our album or something. So um, we did that for a while. And then uh, for the launch, we, we partnered with the Redwood City Education Foundation uh, because we were doing our launch in Redwood City and we'd never played that town before. It's about... 15 miles from our usual spot. Yep. And so, as I mentioned, I told Sherry, I was, I was born there. And yeah. I was in your hood. It was in <laughs> so yeah, I'm all familiar with Redwood city. Yeah. So, um, you know, George and I are really passionate about, you know, not only pursuing our dreams, but also inspiring other people to do it and also helping other people to do it. So whenever we can, we try to, uh, partner with organizations that align with that goal. And Redwood City Education Foundation funds music programs in all the public schools in Redwood City. So we decided that, you know, in order to, f to help us fill out our launch party, we will partner with them and give them our share of the proceeds. Mm. Um, so, you know, we hired backup musicians. We hired our saxophone player, a bass player, and a drummer. So we, they got paid. But for our share of the revenue, we gave that away. But in return, we got, you know, a bunch of people come in that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So um, instead of having 70 people, we had 90 people and almost sold out the place. So, you know, it, it did help. Um, that said, we still had to do a lot of our own marketing to get the other 70 people. But, you know, I, I think... Um, it was a good way for us to engage with the Redwood City community. And also, I think it's important that 
whenever we get an opportunity to also think about how we can give back to that community. So we were very grateful that Angelica's in Redwood City would have us. They're a great venue um, and we wanted to be able to play there again. So we wanted to give back to that community uh, as we were doing the show. So that worked out. I think that was super smart. I mean, I think it always helps to align yourself with a cause that you believe in. And I love that they have an organization. I don't think they had that when I was growing up um, that promotes music in the schools. That is fantastic. So I'm just curious before we move on, how did you promote it locally? Did you get local press? Um, How did you get those other 70 people there? Um, So we, George and I painstakingly went through all the people we have ever emailed in our lives and curated a list of about 1,500 people that, you know, are likely to be interested in our music. So they're, you know, people that we know like music or people who play music themselves, who we think would be receptive. We don't want to just email everybody. Right. Right. So we created a mailing list and then we sorted that mailing list based on, you know, where they live and, you know, what kind of work they do, you know, and we came up with like a Bay area group. So these are the people who would be within the distance to drive, to come to our show. And we, we broke that down into, I think, seven or eight different segments. And we customized an email for each segment to make it personalized. Um, So even though it was a marketing email and we had like the banner and everything, and it looked very, you know, professional marketing thing, the content was very personal. And, um, you know, if they weren't paying attention, they wouldn't know that it was a marketing email. They would just think, you know, Sherry sent me an email after like two years. (laughs) So, so we, we were very, very meticulous about targeting our email campaign. And we got, uh, I think two or three times the industry average response. Mm. Um, so I would definitely recommend you do that. If you have something that you like, that really is important to you, take the time to curate your list and make it as personal as you can. Um, for example, like for each company that George worked at, he created a different template and he said something along the lines of, Hey, I'm doing this show and there will be other people who work at so-and-so company there. Mm. Um, you know, it would be nice for us to all get together and hang out and catch up kind of thing. So, you know, it's more personal than if you're sending an email to all your past colleagues who like music and say, Hey, I'm doing a show. You should come. Right. Um, it gives you more context as to who else might be there and why else they might want to go. And, you know, they might want to go and catch up with some old friends and, yeah, yeah, really, really bit. smart. And, you know, also creating a point of reference in case they don't remember you. Right. Ooh, yeah. I worked with him at this company. Right. So that really helped. Um, and uh, what I also did is for my, for people who work with me, I haven't been here as long, so I don't have as many contacts in the Bay Area, but the contacts that I have, I messaged everybody personally, mm. every single one. And I tried to include something in the email that would demonstrate that I was only sending it to them and nobody else so that it was 
extremely personal to the point where, you know, they would have to respond. Right. <laughs> Even if they're, they're responding to say, I, I can't make it. <laughs> um, so we got a really, really good response rate. That's super, super smart. And so as far as the, so the launch went really well. Mm-hmm. And then how do you think that you translated all of that buzz into what you did on iTunes as far as doing really well out, out of the gate on iTunes? Right. So, um, our launch was on the 30th, March 30th. And then the next day is when the album became available in the store. Mm-hmm. And by a stroke of luck, somebody in the iTunes store, you know, they have curators there that, you know, put together their Apple playlist and whatever. And, um, somebody apparently liked our music and featured it on the new jazz releases. I mean, we, we had not expected to be even seen on that list. There's about 70 albums. If you look at, you know, the new releases in jazz, there's usually about 70 that they show. We didn't even expect to be on there because, you know, we're some small band from California and somehow somebody liked it and featured it. And we were the 31st album when I looked at it on that first day and I was at work and I was like, wait, does that mean what I think it means? <laughs> so I, I went around all my office and I showed it to people and I'm like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? <laughs> you know, I was like, is that real? I was very confused. Um, and I, and I didn't know what it meant. Did it mean that we were getting streams or we were getting album sales? Like, I, or was it just somebody featured it? I, I didn't know. Um, but you know, it's there and it, it does say bestsellers list. So, um, I called Jordan and said, Hey, uh, we're number 31. We need to get to top 20. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think we just thought this is something that we can use to encourage people to buy the album. Mm. And we thought, you know, the partnership with Wedwood City went well. How about we do something similar to boost this? Because, you know, if you're, we're, we were trying to get our album up the charts before the next Friday because of New Music Friday, mm. right? So next Friday, a bunch of new music would come out and we would get kicked out of this list, right. I'm sure, right? So trying to figure out, okay, how do we make the most of those seven days? Um, and, you know, I mean, there's so many people we can reach out to, but if we want to reach out to complete strangers, we need to find a way to engage them because people will see your Facebook ads and they'll maybe glance at it for two seconds. So how do you make people engage with your ad when the first time they see you is an ad and they take barely two seconds to look at it, right? Right. Um, so we thought that if we, if we make the ad about something that they already care about, we have a better chance. Mm. So we looked for another partner and we partnered with Hungry for Music, which is an organization that will ship, buy and ship musical instruments to kids that want to study music, but can't afford it. And they do that around the world. So we partnered with them and uh, we did some cross promotions uh, with them. We also obviously posted on our social media and, um, sure enough, before we went to bed that night, 
we were at number 22. So we went from 31 to 22. So we were very excited. We were like, okay, two more spots. And then we can say we were top 20. Um, the next morning we were 27. So we were like, oh no. <laughs> uh, so it, it was, it was very, um, very exciting. It was up and down, up and down. And uh, I think part of what made it successful was that it having that start of, Hey, we're number 31. Can you help us get to, you know, top 20? And then we got, finally got to top 20 and we said, Oh my God, we made it to top 20. Can you help us get to top 10? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, it positioned us in, in a way that we were kind of the underdog protagonist in the story. And yes. there's, there's like, you know, are they, or are they not going to make the goal? And I think, you know, as we got closer, people were like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I should help them out. So um, definitely, if you can try to build up on on the momentum, you know, use the momentum to like go a little bit further and then use that to get a little bit further. Um, I think that works much better than if we had said from the get-go, get us to top 10. Right. No, I agree. And, you know, that social proof of you already being at number 31 gets your, your foot in the door. Like, okay, right. oh, this is maybe worth checking out because they're already here. And then yeah. oh, wouldn't it be cool to like help somebody out and see them, you know, succeed? Yeah. And one thing I want to mention about that um, is, you know, in a similar vein, when we did our campaign for uh, Hungry for Music, I went on their website and they have a little blurb there that says, you know, if you, $30 will get a new flute to a child and uh, $50 will get a guitar or some, something like that. And so what I did was I went in and I translated that money amount into number of albums that I need to sell to make that oh, amount love it. because I wanted to make sure that people knew exactly what their impact was because people don't really know how iTunes works or, you know, if you buy an album on iTunes for $10, how much is actually going right. to that charity, right? right. So um, what, what I wanted to do was make sure that they know how many albums it would take to get what. So, you know, five albums would get a flute and seven albums would get whatever. And so th there were, I think, eight different, you know, um, instruments that they had laid out. So I converted all of those into albums. And I think it was like, if you, if we sell 143 albums, that would send 20 new instruments to a music, uh, after school music program. So 143 albums is I mean, it's a lot for an indie artist, but it's not that much. So when people think about, you know, 143 albums, they're like, oh, okay, that, that's kind of possible. Whereas if you just say, you know, a dollar amount, people might not know, well, can they reach that dollar amount? Like how, how many albums is that? Right? Oh yeah. I love that, that you're translating, translating it into a goal that they can identify with. Right. So the smallest one I think was five albums would buy and ship a flute to a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, well, if I'm willing to buy an album, it's, it's likely that four others will. So it's likely that a real child will get a real flute mm -hmm. because I bought this album. It's very concrete. Whereas if I just said, you know, $30, well, that that's not as compelling, I think. Oh no. I think that's very, very smart. So were you actually using Facebook ads during this time? 
Yes, I I did. I think I tried two or three different Facebook ads. And just curious, what kind of ad? Were you using a video ad? Were you using a boost post? Were you using a link click ad? I used a boost post and a link click ad. One thing that kind of slowed us down was... um, since Apple Music came out, I think all the iTunes links go to Apple Music and that made it very confusing for people trying to buy our album. Right. Um, so that we finally figured out a way to make it go to the iTunes store and not Apple Music, but it was like well into our campaign. So mm-hmm. I think we did lose a lot. Um, so I would say if you market on iTunes, you know, go look it up. However. You know, the only reason we marketed iTunes so hard is because we were featured there. I mean, right. you know, but they they take 70, I mean, sorry, they take 30% of your cut. Right. So if you don't have that initial reason to market on iTunes, you're better off, you know, marketing on your own website so that you get most of the money. Um, Absolutely. We, Use something like Banzoogle where you get all right or right. Bandcamp or something like that. Right. Yeah, yes. I love that. So how have you guys been able to translate um, this success and, you know, just even that that little kudos there that you did that on iTunes into other press and interviews? And I, and I hinted, you know, when I mentioned this question to you that like that helped you get this interview because when Ariel told me that, I'm like, yeah, I definitely want them on the show. So yeah. how, how is that? How have you been able to leverage that? Yeah. So as soon as we we got to number 31, I was like, overly excited <laughs> and I called Ariel and I said we're number we're number 31 we got to make you know the best of this and she calmly said you know uh it's not that uncommon nowadays for indie artists to chart because you know in general people are not buying as many albums anymore so it's not that uncommon but we definitely can use that so um in addition to trying to create the buzz on our social media and everything. Um, we worked with Ariel to figure out, you know, how we can use that. We came up with some ideas for guest blogs and, um, talking points. And then she went and pitched it to you and uh, a few other outlets. Uh, and yeah, definitely we've gotten a few interviews and guest blog posts from it. Um, and, you know, I mean, we don't claim to be experts at this, you know, we're, we're trying to learn as we go, but I feel like a lot of the approaches that we've taken, people can learn from that. And I'm happy to share. Yeah. I mean, I love that you're approaching it like a startup. And I think that, you know, the more musicians that can do that, and I know that that's kind of the angle that I take on it as well, the entrepreneurial side, mm-hmm. thinking of it that way. So I'm curious. Are you guys using, um, you know, what social media tactics are you using organically uh, besides Twitter to get your message and your album out there? Are you using live streaming? Are you using YouTube or any other social media, you know, Snapchat or Instagram? Yep. Um, You're like all of the above. (laughs) Everything except Snapchat, because I think that our target audience does not use Snapchat. Right. Me either. Uh, By the way. It's good to know who your target audience is so you know which platform to focus on. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so we play a jazz pop 
kind of music. I guess the most similar would be like Nora Jones or Civil Wars. So it's it's not necessarily what you would hear on, you know, the, the most commercial radio all the time. They, they might, you know, put some Nora Jones in there, but it's not the most common thing that people listen to. So, you know, we don't, we know that this is not the kind of music that 15 year old girls will be listening to. Right. So we don't try to go after that market and waste our energy. Um, so uh, I know that Facebook, when they first launched live, they were really trying to get people to use it. So I, I noticed that whenever my friends would go live, I would get a notification. And I said, mm-hmm. huh, we should use that because it'll tell everybody that we're putting out a video. So um, when, we, when the elections were happening, uh, everybody was depressed. So I said to George, hey, everybody's depressed right now. Let's go do a live concert. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, we got, I think, over 300 people watch our live stream that night. While you were live? Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, not we, we played for like two hours. So, you know, it was not all at the same time, but a whole bunch of people watched. And then and even then, more people after it ended too, I'm sure. Right. So definitely, you know, if you can time it. So I, we've done Facebook Live a lot. We do that for our Wine Wednesday, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Um, and, you know, it's kind of on and off. I feel like most of the people watch it afterwards because I think they still get a notification, but they just, uh, you know, they're not on Facebook at the time. Right. So we still get a lot of views, um, more views than if we just posted a video that wasn't live, uh, without promoting it for sure. Yeah. So we did that. One thing that I would say for live is, if you try to time it with something else, it's usually more helpful. So, you know, the election was one of them. Like try to think of when will people be on Facebook? Usually when they're, when there is something going on that everybody's talking about, or, you know, maybe you can target it to something else. Like I'm a huge fan of Amy Lee, who's the singer of Evanescence. Mm -hmm. I just love her voice and I love the way she plays piano and stuff. So on her birthday, I recorded a live video of me doing snippets of her songs and I, you know, I did it live and I posted it and I boosted it and I got like 1500 views in like two days. That's great. Um, so, you know, you can figure out, you know, what you like and what other people like and try to find, you know, good times to post about it. So that's Facebook live. Um, when we started doing our wine Wednesday, we, we tagged, people on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we found that, um, our target audience was mostly active on Twitter. So that's why we focused a bit more on Twitter for that. Um, but then we download the video and put it on YouTube as well. And Instagram. Yeah. Very smart to repurpose that. Why do stuff twice, right? Yeah. As well use it. So how do you use your live performances to build your fan base? Are you collecting email addresses? Are you getting, you know, them to to get on your social media channels at the live shows? Yes. Um, we, well, we do announce it at our show. We tell them, you know, go to our website and you can sign up for our mailing list. But also I bring a guest book that I call it a guest book rather than a mailing list. Right. And I put it in like a nice leather folder and everything. Like it, it looks nice. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I encourage people to leave us a little note. Um, and then also uh, after the show, we hang out and we talk to people. Uh, we 
don't get out of the venue until everybody's gone. And then when everybody's gone, I go around the room talking to the staff and I get them on my mailing list too. (laughs) (laughs) Very smart. Um, And I think it's, I just think it's very important to go around and thank the staff and, you know, ask how they thought the show went. Um, I've seen many artists, you know, kind of take them for granted. And I mean, you know, I think that it, I think it makes you stand out when you're very gracious about it. And when you make sure to thank your sound guy, thank, you know, the venue booker or owner, whoever you talk to and thank the staff who's been serving drinks and food and stuff while you were playing, because they also contributed to that, to the experience. Oh, I so agree with that. And I've had experiences where the staff have come up to me afterward and said, oh my gosh, I love that. I'm going to go tell my, you know, my sister that they need to have you at their, you know, event or something. So you never know who's listening and you want to make sure and connect with them and thank them. Yeah. And um, I just think it's going to help you, as you said, like stand out and, you know, next time they need somebody for something, what if something comes up and they need a musician, who are they going to call? Yeah. The people that were gracious, the people that re- they remember. And if they're on your mailing list, you're going to be top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got um, all the staff who was working during our launch show. I got them all on my mailing list. The next day I sent a personal note to each one of them to thank them. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are many, many, many musicians trying to make it out there and you can't necessarily control how uh you compare to others you know there's always going to be people who are technically better than you or you know people whose music resonates better with this type of person you can't do anything about that but i think what you can do is be an amazing person to work with and that's something that we really strive for we try to be the best client the best you know uh band to work with Uh, We try to make it easy for everybody who works with us so that they want to work with us again. That's, that's fantastic. I love that attitude. So I'm curious, do you have any resources or books that you would recommend that have helped you over the years? And it can be anything from musical, it can be entrepreneurial, it can be self-development, anything you'd recommend for our audience? Absolutely. Um, Before our launch, I listened to pretty much every CD Baby podcast that was somehow related Mm. to launching a new album. I think that was the first uh, podcast that I came across that uh, uh, I started listening to. And I listened to, you know, most of them. I haven't gone into the music licensing stuff because we were focusing on the launch, but I listened to most of them. Um, Podcasts like yours. read Seth Godin's books, Mm. uh, Derek Sivers blogs. I've been following him for a really long time. Um, Ariel's website, cyber PR, they have a a lot of really good stuff out there. Um, yeah, she's got a bunch of great free. In fact, I was just putting this on my mailing list there, uh, her free PR resource. Yeah. Uh, so that, and then, um, Ari Herstan, Ari's take, Oh, big fan of that one. Yeah. And he has a new book, How to Make It into the New Music Business. I bought that book as well. Um, so yeah, these are the ones that I have used the most. 
Um, there are many, many more, including yours. I, I only started seeing your posts like right when we were launching. So I, I didn't get to listen to them beforehand. Uh, but I have been listening to a lot of your podcasts and I really enjoy them. I really enjoyed the guests that you've had. Um, I've learned something from each one of them. So that's pretty cool. That is so great to know. Thank you. Yeah. Those were a lot of great recommendations, you guys. Definitely Ari Herstan, Ari's take, um, his book and Ariel's website and um, CD Baby always has a great podcast. So those are some great. And Seth Godin is great to follow if you want to learn how to develop your tribe. Yeah. And he, he has, I really love the way his blogs are structured. Like he's very, very succinct. And mm-hmm. I think uh, it takes a lot uh, to be able to communicate that much in so little. Yeah. Good point. He's not wasting your time with yeah. any of his words. Yeah. Well, it has been so awesome to have you on the show today. I have, um, I know that our audience has learned a ton and you've given them so many actionable tips. I really appreciate your time. Can you let everybody here know how they can find you and how they can follow you online? Absolutely. Uh, our website is 23rdhour.com, 23rdhr.com. And at the bottom there, you can see all our social links. Um, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, uh, Medium. <laughs> we, we really have tried it all. <laughs> did you get the uh, at 23rd? Yeah, did you get that exact... So no, we have, so two, three RDHR works for our Facebook and SoundCloud, but then we had to use 23rd hours spelled out for Twitter and Instagram. Mm. Um, you know, that's something that I've heard repeatedly on your podcast and other podcasts that, you know, you should have picked a band name that doesn't already exist, but (laughs) we're, we're so far into this now that we're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yes, but definitely when you're thinking about it, you know, go check all of the social channels and see if that's available or if there are other bands that have that. Yeah. We, we, I, I see this all the time with women of substance. I, we do research on the artists when we talk about them on the podcast and it's like, okay, there's like five bands called this. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I've noticed, uh, Hungry for Music did this. They, they couldn't get the same one everywhere. So what they did was they used Hungry for Music 1 on everything, mm. which might be a way to go. So, yeah, you can I mean, it's not as elegant, perfect. but it's consistent. Yeah, yeah totally. I love yeah, that. So idea. here's a tip. <laughs> awesome. So 23rdhr, 23rdhour.com. Yeah. Go check them out, you guys. I know you will be, you know, really love their music and you'll also learn a lot by following what they're doing. So yeah, we post blogs too. So there uh, you go. We we post tips and, you know, we're happy to help any way we can. We don't claim to be experts, but, you know, we'll talk about what we've tried and what we think works for us and people can take that and do whatever they like with it. Perfect. Thank you so much. This has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com. With editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.